Hello, and welcome to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. Today, we're talking about the history of the fast food industry with a focus on the 2016 film The Founder. The film follows the early years of McDonald's as a fast food chain in the 1950s, with Ray Kroc employing cutthroat business tactics to transform the restaurant into a huge chain and achieve what he views as success. Michael Keaton stars as Ray Kroc, Nick Offerman, John Carroll Lynch, Laura Dern, Linda Cardellini, and B.J. Novak also star in key roles. Today we dig into the history behind The Founder. Why do fast food franchises take off when they do after the Second World War? How does the fast food industry fit into the bigger picture of the history of capitalism? How innovative was McDonald's in its business model and system of food production? And what do we make of this historical film genre that traces the biographies of successful business persons? To discuss all this with me, I'm joined by Steve Penfold. Steve is a professor of history at the University of Toronto, whose research interests include the history of fast food, as well as car culture and consumerism in Canada. Steve has published on the history of the donut in Canada, the history of fast food and suburbanization, and the historical connections between globalization and fast food. Some of his past work has focused more specifically on McDonald's. Steve has a lot of fascinating insights into fast food history, and I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. Let's get into it. All right, I'm excited to have on the podcast Professor of History from the University of Toronto, Steve Penfold. Steve, thanks for joining me on the show. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your research topic? Yeah, so I teach history at U of T, University of Toronto, and I guess my interests follow two kind of broad streams. I'm primarily interested in the history of capitalism, I guess you'd say, like the cultural history of capitalism in particular. But I also have a kind of secondary interest in suburbs and what people call drive-in society. And so in some ways, McDonald's really is at the intersection of those two those two interests. Yeah. And you've written about fast food a fair bit, right? You, you, wrote, you wrote a book on the history of the donut in Canada. You've mm-hmm. written about suburbanization with fast food, with like Dairy Queen and Tim Hortons and things like that. How did you become interested in the history of fast food? And what do you think is is interesting about that topic. Yeah, I mean, the most basic answer, you know, I could give you some long academic one that quoted Foucault and Marx and all that. But really, like, I grew up in the suburbs and used to sit in donut shops and fast food places an awful lot. Mm -hmm. And so when I came to thinking about my own interests, you know, everyone does me search at some level, right? And so I said, oh, I should I should research the history of the of the donut. That would be kind of funny and also interesting. And the deeper I got into it, the more interesting it became in a kind of academic sense, that it really brought together all sorts of questions of capital and family and consumption and culture. So, but when I was researching the donut, I just kept tripping over references to other forms of fast food. And I think I was mainly interested in the similarities between donut shops and other fast food places in terms of their interest in systems and making everything into systems and procedures yeah. that could be put in manuals. And so that kind of is how I expanded out to fast food. But I mean, they, they all inhabit similar roadside locations early on. They're all tied to drive in, drive through kind of society. They all expand as a kind of inherent part of their, their operations. And so I guess just the similarities between the two sort of interested me. I think we'll get into a lot of those themes about systemization and stuff like that mm-hmm. in this discussion about the founder. So 
I should introduce the movie for people who haven't seen it or, or haven't seen it since it came out. So this is the 2016 movie, The Founder. And the movie starts in the year 1954. The protagonist is Ray Kroc. And he's sort of this huckster type traveling milkshake mixer salesman is his job at the start of the movie. And he is traveling around to all of these drive-ins and or stopping at drive-ins as he's trying to sell his milkshakes and um, not liking how they're sort of doing business. He sort of thinks they're inefficient. And eventually he essentially hears about McDonald's, this burger stand in San Bernardino, California. And they order a, a whole bunch of milkshake mixers from him, which a really unusual number. So he's sort of interested in this and he travels out there himself to go see what's going on. And what he finds is these proprietors, Richard and Maurice McDonald, the two McDonald brothers have created this burger stand that has this sort of factory style approach to producing food, what they call the speedy system in the movie. And Kroc is fascinated with this ultra efficient style of production where they've sort of timed everything to be as efficient as possible and, and mapped out exactly the, the geography of the interior of the restaurant to sort of maximize efficiency, all this sort of stuff. And Kroc decides he wants to go into business with them. Particularly, he wants to establish franchises of the restaurant. And the McDonald brothers are sort of hesitant about this, but they eventually reluctantly agree. And a lot of the rest of the movie is tensions between Kroc and the McDonald brothers about how to do business. The McDonald brothers kind of have this perception of doing business a very particular way, what they would see as a more honest way or, or a dignified way, I think. Whereas Kroc is sort of willing to do anything he can to maximize profits is essentially one of the key tensions in the movie. And they come into conflict about this stuff. But Kroc continues to sort of expand. He's sort of establishing all these franchises initially sort of in the American Midwest, mostly. And increasingly, he's sort of pushing himself as the proprietor of McDonald's over the McDonald brothers. And eventually, toward the end of the movie, he does sneaky business stuff to increasingly push them out of running things. Eventually, they make a deal to hand over control to Kroc. Once the McDonald brothers realize that the sort of power imbalance is such that they could never really get what they want anyway. That's kind of the gist of the movie. There's also a plot line about Kroc's relationship with his wife, and he doesn't treat his, his wife very well. But that's sort of the gist of the movie. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? No, I think that sounds like pretty much what the, the movie's about. It captures a lot of the key dynamics, I think, of early McDonald's fairly well, even if like any movie, it's not precisely every scene is, you know, documentary accuracy. But I think there, you know, there was a lot of tension between Croc and the McDonald brothers around expansion. And a lot of it also coming from the McDonald brothers lawyer, who was very reluctant to give the McDonald's corporation, Croc, permission to change things. Oftentimes the McDonald brothers were, would say, oh, that's fine. But the lawyer wouldn't want to give the written approval. Okay. So I think there, there is a certain amount. And also the tension between Croc and his wife, I think, is also somewhat accurate. Right. Okay. I will say, by the way, that I did get McDonald's to w eat while watching the movie. <laughs>
Yeah, uh, of course, the McDonald's that we're eating now is quite different than the McDonald's that uh, they were eating then, just in terms of literally it's yeah. it's makeup. Like, I'm not sure if the taste is a whole lot different, but, uh, you know, the McDonald's we eat now is much more a result of scientific food research and experimentation in a way that, I mean, the, the McDonald brothers experimented with efficiency and, and systems and so on. But yeah, the, the, the food is the food is constituted in a different way today. Definitely. Yeah. I had, I think I, I had chicken nuggets, which were not on the, not on the 1954 menu. Actually kind of an interesting example that leads nicely into my question. When I was at the McDonald's, there was another family in front of me in line and the father ended up getting a bit annoyed at the employees because he had to wait like 10 or 15 minutes for his food or something like that. And I think that leads nicely into thinking about what McDonald's and what fast food are kind of all about is about this mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. efficiency. In the film, what really draws Croc to McDonald's is this speedy system, this this factory-style production system that the McDonald brothers have created. And at one point, he sort of, he calls them like the Henry Ford of hamburgers or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the movie m- makes this out to be a really major innovation and kind of completely original innovation on the part of the McDonald brothers. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, was McDonald's really such a pioneer in this regard? Or was this something that they popularized that somebody else had established elsewhere? That's one of those um, kind of classic historians answers. And in, in it's kind of yes and no. There are lots of the ingredients that I don't mean ingredients in terms of food, but in terms of you know, the way the business was run, lots of the ways that the McDonald brothers went about running their outlet had been around for a while in food service. The idea of limited menus, like White Castle uh, in the 20s and 30s had a limited menu. The idea of standardization of efficiency through new forms of equipment and so on, that had been floating around. On the other hand, they did actually generate quite a bit of excitement in the restaurant industry, like even before Kroc discovered them. It's not like they were unknown when Kroc came in 1954. They actually had been profiled in the major national restaurant magazine hmm. in 1952, precisely because they had, I guess, taken some of the ideas that, that really motivated food service people, efficiency, control, standardization, and they had taken them to a new extreme or, you know, the highest stage of some of that stuff. And so people were pretty impressed. And so even before Croc realized that this could be franchised and they talk about this in the movie, other people had come and they had kind of allowed them to open franchises in other places, the brothers. So they were attracting a lot of attention. So in that sense, it was a new level of efficiency and a new a new level of of commitment to some of these things mm-hmm. but it, i i wouldn't say it was completely new like they didn't invent efficiency in the restaurant business right i mean fast food or food that is available fast has yeah. existed you know forever essentially right yeah yeah historian as you know historians hate saying things have always existed <laughs> um, there's nothing worse than an undergraduate essay that starts since the beginning of time. <laughs> yeah. But it's true. Yeah. I mean, food that is fast is longstanding. And, you know, and that comes in a lot of different forms. Mm-hmm. Fast food, capital F, capital F, you know, is something different, which is more, I guess, Fordist, you could call it, you know, 
more factory-like. I've never actually been much taken by the Henry Ford comparison as a description of what the McDonald's were doing. It certainly is metaphorically accurate, the idea of you know breaking down the production process into its tiniest increments, standardizing the inputs so that you can move the product along much more efficiently. That's definitely, you know, metaphorically for that works. But I think it actually owes more to Frederick Taylor, the fast food system, because Ford's big, I guess, contribution was putting a very complex product on, on a moving assembly line. Mm -hmm. And the moving assembly line allowed him not only efficiency, but control over his workers. But the McDonald's didn't really do that. Actually, Burger King in the early days had an had a like an automatic broiler where you put it in one end and it came out the other. <laughs> okay. and That's more Fordist. So Frederick Taylor was this, I guess, contemporary of Ford, who he actually analyzed the way workers moved. And so he was very interested not in necessarily mechanizing everything, although he liked that too, but in finding systems to control human labor. Mm. And he wanted to take the knowledge particularly of skilled workers, out of the heads of skilled workers and put it into basically manuals and rules that are controlled by management. Hmm. And so he did a lot of studies on the way workers move. Like he would literally photograph workers doing their job with little lights on their hand. And he would just leave the camera open so that they would trace lines on the image. And then he'd build like 3D models of how they were working. And he would try to introduce maximum efficiency through a whole list of rules. And he thought there was basically one best way to do everything. And if, if you subjected work, human work to study, then you would produce the most efficient way. But more importantly, management would be able to control these, these systems and you would no longer be so dependent on, you know, error-filled human capacities. So I think like the McDonald brothers, it's not like they went out and read Frederick Taylor, but actually Historically, it's more similar to, can you have something that's more similar? Anyway, it's similar to Taylor in that sense, in that they weren't really automating the system or putting it on an actual assembly line. There was a kind of metaphorical assembly line that went through the different parts, but it was still very much reliant on human labor to set the pace. And what that meant is that you had to control human labor really quite intensely through rules. And that's why McDonald's had has like a, you know, hundreds of pages of manuals because they have descriptions for the way you're supposed to do everything because it's not really a, a huge Fordist factory in that sense. Like it's not River Rouge, this enormous Fordist factory that he builds in the, you know, in the 1920s and 30s. These are more like industrialized cottage industries where you have all these small shops distributed across space where you need to enforce efficiency through rulemaking mm. more than through a moving assembly line. All that said, now that I've gotten my historian nerd, let's be accurate thing out, you know, the spirit of Ford is there. Break it down, uh, move it along, focus on efficiency, squeeze every single half second out of every process that you can. That's Fordist in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And the movie really emphasizes this idea of control of movement and exactly what people are doing. There's that whole scene where the McDonald brothers have sort of gone in, I think a tennis court or something, and they've like mapped out on the ground what the interior of the restaurant is going to look like. And then they have the employees like rehearse 
walking around the restaurant and stuff. And then they, they sort of reorganize to maximize the efficiency. Yeah. Which is actually that they did that. Actually, that was an actual thing they did. They drew it all out on their tennis court. And the story is, I don't know if it's true or whether it's a bit of a, you know, tall fish tail or whatever, is that it rained that night and erased all their chalk marks and they had oh, to no. do it again, again the next day. And I don't know if that's true, but yeah, they certainly were very committed to what we might call ketchup choreography, right? I mean, like just choreographing <laughs> their workers' movements. I think one of the themes that this leads nicely into is, so one thing that stood out to me when I watched this movie was a comparison to Moneyball. I don't know if you have watched or read Moneyball. Yes, yes, I have. Yeah, okay. So for anyone who hasn't, Moneyball is about baseball. And the idea is that this is this is a based on a true story where this professional baseball team was essentially applying data-driven and goal-oriented thinking to exploit inefficiencies of conventional wisdom in the sport and sort of maximize, I guess it's not really profit in baseball, it's like maximizing wins, but it's sort of a similar style of thinking, right? And the McDonald brothers have obviously this sort of factory style approach to producing food, but they haven't really fully, it seems like part of the movie is, is about Croc finding these quote unquote inefficiencies and exploiting them. So I feel like the movie is sort of like moneyballing hamburgers. But so for example, Croc is interested in using fake ingredients. There's a big fight between Croc and the McDonald brothers about using fake milkshake powder, getting corporate sponsors on the menus, which the McDonald brothers see as sort of crass and Croc just sees as another opportunity for profit. And so, so Croc is really interested in doing whatever he can to maximize the profit. And I think that in general, the movie is telling a narrative about a transition, a historical transition between two styles of doing business. One of which is, it's sort of a like romantic take on older style business of, you know, the McDonald brothers represent a sort of honest approach, a, a more dignified approach. And Croc represents this sort of hyper-modernist, maximize everything capitalist. Was this a real transition that was happening in fast food at this time? And was this transition, if it was real, was it unique to fast food? Yeah, I mean, the movie definitely sets that up. Yeah, There's no question about that. And, you know, it works as far as it goes, I guess, as a kind of, I mean, you need to make a movie that has a narrative. In some ways, I think it actually focuses our attention on the wrong things about fast food. First of all, I should say, I don't think that's a transition at all. I think the two forms coexist in many historical periods and I mean, even today you see people, you know, aiming from, let's say the McDonald brothers might represent a, a certain conception of work-life balance where, you know, they're, they're basically doing fine and they want to kind of not have all the hassles of, of expansion hmm. because they are making an awful lot of money. There's no question, not croc scale money, but they're making an awful lot of money. So as I said, I think it, in some ways it, it focuses attention on the wrong things. And then I think that what croc was most interested in was control and efficiency and scale. And I think that movie narrative kind of sets it up as this, as you say, contrast of honesty and authenticity and, you know, family versus profit and, and, and all those sorts of things. In some ways, Croc actually 
avoids all sorts of ways that he could have monetized McDonald's much earlier than he did. I mean, in franchising, the easiest way to make money very quickly is to sell big territorial franchises that way, you know, you basically sell the entire state of Ohio mm. and you say, I, I come to you and I say, you now have the rights to all of Ohio and you can open as many stores as you want in Ohio. And what that ends up doing is, is diluting control that the main headquarters of, of the company you know, it makes it much harder because, first of all, they don't have direct access to the outlets anymore in the sense of, you know, you're the one controlling the outlets, but also you're pretty big. And so it's just kind of harder to control you. You're creating mini corporations within the corporation. But I mean, it's a really fast way to get rich, because if I sold all the territories for a good amount of money, I'd make a lot of money. And then if it doesn't work out over the long term, that's not a huge deal because I've already made my cash. Whereas he actually avoided that because he wanted control. Even the idea that they talk about in the movie where Harry Sonneborn developed this way to make money off the real estate, which is actually accurate. He came in and McDonald's ended up owning a lot, a lot of the land that it used, much more than other fast food companies. And this was really Harry Sonneborn more than it was Ray Kroc. But even that was extremely expensive in the early days. And it ended up paying off. But what appealed to Croc in particular was the control that it allowed over, over the franchisees, the control that it allowed over the system. His early franchisees had done a lot of other things, as they show in the movie, like start ordering pizza and burritos and all this kind of stuff. And he really wanted control. He wanted that focus on the original McDonald's model, which is limited menu, standardization. You know, So I think in some ways that narrative... While I understand its power and why you would make a movie that way, I think the the issue of fast food is more around control, efficiency, and scale. I think that's really what I mean. Obviously, Croc wanted to make money. Yeah, I mean he's a capitalist. He's a huge believer in free enterprise. But his path to that profit maximization was through control, efficiency, and scale more than it was through a lot of easy paths. Not easy, but a lot of easier paths that he could have taken. To profit maximization. So, I, yeah, I, it's not that I fundamentally disagree with that narrative that the movie sets up. I just don't think it actually works perfectly for Croc. Yeah. Uh, he was really like Henry Ford, actually. Henry Ford did all sorts of incredibly inefficient things. I mean, money wise, like he started recycling programs and he was fascinated. He, he was obsessed with control. And I think a lot of these guys. The money is secondary. It's like you said, Moneyball is about maximizing wins. And in some ways, Croc just wanted to win. Right. Uh, and, he, and he felt that money would come, after, come as a result of being the best, biggest, most efficient, you know, most, most ruthlessly devoted to control at the, at the outlet level. He thought money would come from that mm-hmm. more than he went in there going, okay, I'll make a lot of money off this and then I'll move on to, you know space technology or something and we get like some of that in the movie i think there's the there's the scene or a couple of scenes where croc gets some of his wealthy buddies back in the midwest to invest or or to start their own mcdonald's franchises and then he's visiting their franchises and he's very unhappy with how they're running the franchises Mm -hmm. uh, because one of them is serving stuff that isn't on the typical McDonald's menu. It's like corn Mm -hmm. and fried chicken. Mm -hmm. One of them is not making the burgers the quote unquote correct way. Mm -hmm. And in that scene, Croc is not so concerned about profit. It seems like as as much as 
making sure they're following his his quote unquote his system. Mm-hmm. So we do get the sense that two of Croc's big business innovations in the film, or two of the things Croc does, I guess, mm-hmm. are mass franchising and trying to ensure like a consistency in the customer experience at each McDonald's location. Can you talk about why these are trends in food more generally in this period? Because I don't think this is, this isn't necessarily, I think, unique to McDonald's, right? This is sort of the fast food experience, but why sort of in the sort of post-World War II period, do mass franchising and efforts to create consistency across these franchises really take off? Yeah, I mean, franchising has been around for a while. You know, it goes back to the late 19th century in certain forms when they had kind of like product franchises. Singer Sewing Machines is one of the early companies to do this in the late 19th century, where they basically license producers all around the country to make Singer Sewing Machines based on the Singer model and then to sell them. You know, they don't set up whole outlets or anything. So this is a kind of a business franchise is sort of more developed model of this, but the idea of franchising has been around for a while. And it's just basically you sell the right to somebody to produce a product to your specifications. In this case, the product is both a hamburger and an entire outlet, an entire system for, for making the hamburger and marketing it and so on. I mean, the, the power of it, the classic power of it comes from supposedly balancing economies of scale you know, the scale or the organization that comes with scale, the marketing power that comes with scale, the buying power that comes with scale against individual initiative on the ground. And it is true that like, again, unlike Ford, who could build a huge factory and produce 9 trillion cars out of that factory, you can't really do that with a hamburger. You actually need to sell it close to where people consume it. And so you need very small outlets distributed across wide space to sell hamburger and smiles. But on the other hand, uh, you need to control them. And so franchising became a kind of way of trying to balance those two things, the pull to the big. It's much cheaper to buy. It's much cheaper to advertise when you have huge scale. And the pull to the small, which is these smaller kind of outlets. So it it makes a certain sense in balancing some of the contradictions of capitalism, right? That scale can be inefficient yet it's simultaneously efficient. So anyway, it it was bursting out all over in this period. I mean, in in all sorts of different forms. One way that I guess Croc was a little ahead of the curve, maybe, or at least one of a few pioneers that were a bit ahead of the curve, is they did set up much more, I guess, developed personnel systems to really put control into effect on the ground. They supervised their franchisees maybe a bit more than others did. I mean, once McDonald's did it, one of the things about capitalism or consumer capitalism in particular is it's really built on emulation more than innovation. Like someone makes some tiny little innovation over here and everyone copies it. Hmm. And so in some ways, people started catching up to McDonald's very quickly. But I mean, if you go back, I mean, if you like read some of the histories of McDonald's, where they actually talk to some of the other people like Burger Chef and Burger Queen and Burger King and all these places, even the the owners of these places say, we just didn't control things nearly as closely as McDonald's. And that was really, we knew we were supposed to, like everyone's saying that, even places that have 40 outlets when McDonald's has 500 are saying, we're battling the human capacity to do things differently. 
like we're, we're, we're battling basically human nature at every turn and we need mm. to control them and, and make sure they do things exactly as we want them to, which is not a natural way of going about life. The McDonald's just did it a lot more coherently, a lot had more people on the ground, much more committed to it. So in that sense, he was a little bit ahead of the curve, or at least one of a few people who are ahead of the curve in terms of the degree of control and the amount he was willing to invest both time, energy, and money. I guess that's not both. That's three things, time, energy, money, into really exercising that control on the ground. Yeah, so the, the ideal of mass franchising is really about this tension around scale versus smallness and localness. But that sets up a whole lot of tensions around who controls things, who controls marketing, who controls the employees, who controls the system. And so there's all these tensions in the system that I guess Kroc mastered slightly better than other people. But that's kind of like people are always looking for some sort of why did McDonald's do better? Or I always would get asked, why did Tim Hortons do better than every other company? Like, what did they do that was different than every other company? Now, I'm not a business person like I, you know, I'm not a business expert. But there's not much I can see that they did differently, mm. you know, in terms of like Tim Hortons brought in no smoking places a little earlier than others. And they also brought in drive throughs a little earlier than others. But other than that, like everyone was expanding menus and everyone was doing all the things that, you know, Tim Hortons supposedly did or McDonald's supposedly did. They just did it a bit better. <laughs> you know, better is not the right word, but, you know, with more rigid control, with more investment in that side. Anyway, this is a long answer to say. That McDonald's is very typical of the period in some ways, but there are more, there are a heightened version of it. And in fact, the sociologist George Ritzer actually coined the term McDonaldization to describe the way that many industries in the post-war period essentially adopted that same dynamic of predictability, control, standardization. And he actually discusses like the insurance industry, the food industry, even universities. He has a couple of mentions of universities trying to standardize things. So it becomes a kind of model. He uses the term both metaphorically, but also seriously in the sense that some people were looking at McDonald's and saying, you know, oh, we're going to be the McDonald's of the computer business, or we're going to be the McDonald's of the donut business, or we're going to be the McDonald's of the real estate business or whatever. Usually people meant the biggest, the best, but they also meant the one most committed to predictability, standardization, control, efficiency, all those things. It's interesting that you mentioned rigid control and consistency because I was thinking about that. And, I, you know, obviously that is very important to the sort of McDonald's and, and mass franchise fast food business industry. But I was also thinking about how in more recent years with the sort of globalization of a lot of these brands, you do have bespoke menus in different countries. McDonald's, I mean, here in Canada, we have poutine on the menu now. They have all sorts of other stuff that is sort of tailored to local preferences in all sorts of different countries, right? And I think it all, it sort of comes back to what you were saying about like, you sort of set up like a mini corporation within the corporation to run things locally, but then it's harder to control. It feels like that's true, but instead of it being like at a state level, it's like different countries around the world, right? Yeah, I mean, sociologists, anthropologists often call this globalization, right? The interaction between the global and the local, and there's all sorts of local variations. And this is 100% true. And the classic kind of study of this was 
by a bunch of anthropologists who looked at McDonald's in East Asia, and they found all this local variation within these sort of standardized systems, both in terms of food, but also in terms of cultural practice and so on. And yeah, I, I, I think that's important, like that as fast food moved globally, it adapted, it took on variety, like that's part of the thing. But I think, again, I think that puts the, the emphasis on the wrong issue with fast food, where it sets up a tension between homogenization and variety. And everyone goes, oh, McDonald's, it homogenizes diets, it, it, it erases variety. I mean, if, if you've never had a hamburger in your local market before and McDonald's comes and introduces hamburgers, that actually is adding to local variety, not subtracting from it. But I think, again, the, the, the question, does McDonald's homogenize or does it have to deal with variety on the ground? It just isn't the right one. I think that the dynamic of fast food is standardization of products and having a vision of production that focuses on those things that we talked about, efficiency, control, predictability, standardization. So the actual product is kind of irrelevant. You know, if you can McDonaldize it, it's fast food. So if it's ketchup or curry, it doesn't really matter. If it's uh, a potato or a, a bagel, it, it doesn't really matter. If it's a coffee or a tea, it doesn't really matter. The question is, can you standardize it? Can you Fordize it? Can you subject it to the, the rigid efficiency and control that, that fast food companies want? And that's both standard across time and space. So, you know, if you go into a McDonald's today, it should be the same as it was about a year ago. It also should be the same in Paris as it is in Toronto, by which I mean the same product should taste the same. You know, the French fry should be the French fry. But more importantly, it's, it's the back. It's not the front and the food. It's the back. It's the system that is actually the most important thing. The distinguishing feature for me of fast food is, is the system, not the actual product they serve. So you could have a fast food falafel or you could have a fast food burger. You know, you could probably have, I don't know, yeah, fast food cake, like name a product, right? Curry, ketchup, mustard, whatever. It's have you subjected it to systematic, technocratic, technological thinking? And that's the thing that distinguishes fast food in my mind. One of the things I also wanted to ask you about, which is sort of ties into this point about globalization, I guess, is so you've researched particularly the history of fast food in Canada, also abroad, but like some of your research focuses on mm-hmm. fast food in Canada. And in the movie, Croc spends a lot of time emphasizing how there's something distinctively American about McDonald's, right? And I think it's true that a lot of people outside of the United States see McDonald's and other similar brands, fast food brands, as symbols of American culture and potential Americanization of their culture, right? And this is a long-standing concern of Canadians is mm-hmm. Americanization of Canadian culture. I'm curious about how did Canadians react to the arrival of American fast food chains, particularly given this long-standing concern? You know, McDonald's, but we have so many other ones now, it's not really a unique question at McDonald's. Yeah, I mean, I think they reacted the same way that Canadians react to a lot of American culture, which is to be nervous about it, even while consuming it. Right. I mean, I think this in some ways is the story of the world that 
reaction to Americanization of culture or new American products is always a mix of anxiety, critique, and acceptance. And so, particularly in Canada, where there's a kind of cultural and social similarity, while a real focus on what some might argue were pretty minor differences. And so, and I think like, I've been interested more broadly in the history of shopping as well. And there's been a lot of efforts to convince people to shop Canadian, both from, from business and from government, more recently from government over a long century. But unless you actually have laws that compel people to do so, like tariffs that raise the prices of American goods, they've really had mostly rhetorical effect. And even the people who advertise, you should shop Canadian, or you should buy Canadian, or you should you know, consume Canadian, even admit how weak their pitch is by saying things like, assuming the price and quality is the same. And so, I mean, no one goes out and goes, yeah, you know, we know that McDonald's A, or whatever the Canadian version is of, you know, local McDonald's, the Red Barn or Harvey's or whatever, we know that that might not be high quality, although... You know, I have no opinion on that. I'm not, I'm not trying to knock Harvey's. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you know, I find those pictures are often rhetorical and people are a lot more anxious about them in spirit than they are in their actual consumption practices. There's actually a really good quote from, like, the early 1960s from a guy who was talking about, like, radio and TV. And he said, you know, as, as citizens, Canadians express a lot of fear of American culture, but as consumers or as audiences, they make their choices. And those are usually for the American things. So in that sense, McDonald's has done very well in Canada. Very, very, very well. It arrived in 1967. And then later sort of, it originally had two like sort of big licenses, the East and the West, and then it consolidated them into McDonald's Canada. That company's done very well. Some years even better than the American company. Mm. And so I think they just do very well. And even like Tim Hortons, which we think is really Canadian, is essentially... American fast food model, right? Like subject the donut to a system, find roadside locations, get drivers to come and and so on. I mean, at times it's been Canadian owned, but I'm not sure that really affected the practice on the ground, leaving aside the marketing, which goes really hard at, at Canadian themes. Yes, definitely Tim Horton's its whole branding is we are the Canadian fast food chain. Yeah, yeah. I have noticed the other ones this sort of buy Canadian thing is interesting because I feel like that it creeps into things that even you don't typically think of as Canadian. Like when I, so when I went to McDonald's before watching this movie, I, I noticed on the packaging I got on the logo, there's a maple leaf, right? It's sort of in mm-hmm. the middle of the mm-hmm. golden arches. And and that stood out. To, and I think that's a pretty common thing for, for fast food chains that are imported. They've sort of added mm-hmm. a little mm-hmm. Canadian maple leaf or something like that. Yeah. That's the same, you know, I feel like I'm answering every question saying, I think that's important, but I think it puts the focus on the wrong thing. And again, <laughs> like this, you know, this might be every lecture I've ever given, you know, like uh, just trying to confuse students with the same point over and over again. But like, I, I really, I, I think it's kind of true. And then like, I really do think the national question has been very powerful in thinking about American culture. And there's lots of people who have written stuff on it. There's been royal commissions and so on and so on. Yeah. Lots of people still shop at Walmart, still shop at McDonald's. And I I think there's a lot more rhetoric being spewed than actual wrestling with that question. And again, I think when I'm talking about fast food, I'm just much more interested in those questions of scale, efficiency, power in the economic 
and cultural sense than I am in questions of whether McDonald's Americanizes people because I just think it it's not unimportant. It just puts the emphasis, I think, on the wrong thing, mm-hmm. which is, you know, McDonald's is a very powerful company. And that, I, again, I just think is more important <laughs> than than whether it's Canadian or American, because it's like they used to say in the those free trade debates, you know, it's we're debating Wall Street versus Bay Street. Right. What about Main Street? <laughs> now, it didn't work so well for the NDP in 1988, but they weren't entirely wrong in making that point. Fair enough. Speaking of Main Street, one thing I wanted to ask you about was the relationship between essentially automobile culture and fast food. Mm -hmm. This is something that you've written a bit about, the relationship between car culture, suburbs in particular, and the fast food industry. This is actually not really a feature of the founder. It doesn't really come up that much. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how and why these are connected. Yeah, in fact, this is one of the things that originally got me into it was a sort of interest in suburban history. In fact, when I first started doing some research on the donut, I was really thinking of it as a aspect of suburban history mm. more than of consumer or food history. Yeah. And I think if you read the, the donut book, you'll see that in that hardly anyone in that book eats, actually. Like people drive, they park. Like I literally have like 10 pages on parking. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> and like at no point does anyone actually consume a donut. It's a bit of a flaw, actually. When you write. It's, like, <laughs> it's like I wrote a book on religion and never talked about priests. It's just like, it's totally insane. But anyway, uh, but, it, but partly it was driven by that interest in car culture. Yeah. And so, I mean, in the early days, 50s and 60s, fast food was almost exclusively a suburban or a roadside thing. And in fact, Croc used to say, when you're looking for locations, look for, for churches and station wagons, both of which to him signaled respectable family kind of market. And this is also where, you know, the great booms of the post-war period, the economic boom, you know, the baby boom, they really intersect in the suburbs. You know, there's a suburban boom going on where there's all these baby boomer families who are supposedly doing really well and it's a prosperous period. So in some ways that was, everyone's chasing that market. But it also signaled for Croc a kind of respectability. And that tension is in the movie. You know, he doesn't want these teenagers hanging around. You know, like they, they don't talk about it so much in the movie, but they wouldn't hire women. They did uh, in the early days. It was the late 60s before they started hiring women to oh, wow. the outlets because it, to him, it was too much like the car hops that basically these young boys would come and try to flirt with the car hops and they were rowdy and they would drive away the family market. And so there's a great phrase I found in a newspaper somewhere they talk about fast food as selling by the carload. And what they really meant was, yeah, mom, dad, two kids in the back. This also has a racial dynamic in that a lot of fast food in the early days is, is targeting white suburban families. Hmm. And it's not really until the late 60s, but really even more seriously, the 70s, that a lot of fast food places start going downtown, but also going to smaller towns and also going to like everywhere they are now, like you know, malls and hospitals and, and so on. That's really a story of the 70s and 80s. There was a few examples uh, before that, but not as a really coherent strategy. So yeah, it really was tied to that kind of post-war suburban sort of boom. Most of the big fast food companies really chased that white middle-class suburban market. And they just saw those things almost as completely interconnected. They didn't imagine there was anything else. Like they didn't say, oh, we need to reach middle-class families. So we'll go to the suburbs. We need to reach 
families. So we'll go to the, you said, you know, where this is the market and that's how they imagined it. That's interesting that the connection between fast food and or fast food franchises and small towns comes later because I tend to think of that as being a very strong connection now. Yeah, I, I don't want to overdo that in that like Dairy Queen, for example, went to small towns okay. very, very early. And so, yeah, I don't want to overdo that point. But I think like when you think of the the ideal fast food market, they're chasing those those sorts of yeah, like white middle-class families, churches and, and station wagons. I mean, it really is like when they had the first outlet they opened in, in Canada, which was in Richmond, BC, I mean, Croc just says that explicitly. We, we look for churches and station wagons. And partly he's trying to send out a message to people that this is a respectable place. This isn't like a, you're not going to find hoodlums here. You're not going to find bikers. You're not going to find, you know, rowdy teenage boys and so on. But that also affects the way that, they build the place. Like I think that that strategy of reaching car driving suburban middle class families is in like the whole operation. Like it's in their advertising, it's in the way they look for locations, but it's also in the style of the outlets and that they're pretty informal. You don't need to get dressed up to go to a McDonald's. Burger Chef actually had an ad that said in the late 60s, the only thing dr- uh, dressed up is our hamburgers. Right. You know, it's a kind of informality. But civility at the same time, mm. you know, so it's informal, but it's but it's not grimy. Croc had all these, you know, if you have time to lean, you have time to clean. He was obsessed with cleanliness, but he, he was almost obsessed with kind of moral hygiene as well. Like, mm. you know, cleaning up the image of the drive in was one of his goals. And so, yeah, all that the car, the suburbs, middle class, all of that kind kind of came together in the early market. And we get that a little bit in the movie. Yeah. There's a, there's sort of a scene in the movie where Croc is talking about his ideal McDonald's franchise locations. And he essentially says, like, where you see an American flag and a church, yeah. th- then then we want the third thing to be a McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that that calls in small towns, I guess, but not towns so much, maybe small cities. Yeah. In that, like, you know, Kingston was as good as Toronto. Yeah. And I think, too, like the whole carload idea where like you don't have seats, you know, people eat in their cars quite literally. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, if, you know, if Martians came down and saw a fast food outlet in 1960, they would say, what is that tiny building doing this in, in this, this huge parking lot, right? Most of the space is actually parking. Right. Uh, most of it. And that's very typical of, of the cutting edge of commerce, consumer commerce, you know, shopping malls, have much more parking than they have actual retail space. It's almost like they're places to park and incidentally buy things. That leads nicely into one of my other questions I wanted to ask you about. Thinking about some of the major transitions in fast food since the film, one of them, which we already talked a bit about that I wanted to bring up, was globalization. But we've already sort of talked a bit about that. The other one that I was thinking about was the sort of rise and fall of the dining room as part of the fast food experience. Like I was thinking about, so the, the McDonald's that I went to before watching the movie is in a subway station. Okay. There's no seating at all. It's just sort of a takeout place. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, so in the period of the movie, there's no dining room at all. There's maybe a couple of benches outside the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And at some point in the history of, McDonald's, the restaurants tended to add big dining rooms and even like 
stuff to entice you to come right like mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. little playgrounds for kids i think some mm -hmm. of them even used to have video game consoles when i was a kid okay. and i feel like this is beginning to change again and this is probably accelerated by the pandemic but increasingly more and more people don't even go to the restaurant they sort of order it with an app and somebody delivers it to them right so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that yeah so seats uh, mcdonald's starts adding them late 60s i think i mean 1968 i think is around the time they start adding seats part of it is just kind of the evolution of you know lots of other places are adding seats some places have had seats before mcdonald's so mcdonald's it becomes kind of standard one of the problems it solved, actually, strangely enough, was a zoning one in that a lot of places to try to control the proliferation of drive-in restaurants, one of the ways they did that was by controlling where businesses serving food with no seats could actually go. And so if you add seats, you become much more like a restaurant and it actually becomes harder to exclude you from lucrative areas. Mm. I'm not saying that was McDonald's primary motivation, but that's definitely a thing that's floating around in many different places. And the definitional challenge for city councils of trying to keep out drive-ins when they add seats becomes actually quite immense. Mm. Some of them actually have areas where you just can't have a restaurant and then they allow exceptions if they want to allow the restaurant there. Like, I mean, it's really like there's like reports by municipal, like uh, umbrella uh, municipal councils and stuff going, how do we get rid of these drive-ins? So, so that's one thing, but yeah, some of it's just the evolution of the thing where you allow people to sit and they figured that's going to make us more money because they'll spend a bit more and, and so on. Yeah. But I guess when, when you go into places like subway stations, I mean, leaving aside the lot, it's not practical. It's also just hugely expensive to have that that land, right? And particularly when you have to start expanding your kitchen because you're making many more products, then, you know, a lot of the expansion just takes the seats. But I mean, obviously they don't want seats, right? Like who would want seats? It's incredibly inefficient to have seats because it slows down turnover. But I mean, a certain part of the customer base wants seats. So you you have seats. But actually, like the most efficient system would just be to have a tube that in three seconds delivered. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, well, that's what the drive through is essentially. <laughs> that's right, essentially, yeah. So the ideal would not be have seats. Plus, you have to clean the seats. You have to, yeah. like, there's a whole, you have to police it. It's a whole sort of scene. It raises a whole other problems. But a certain percentage wants their seats. And that's, you know, you got to grow. You got to grow your revenue. You got to grow your same store revenue. That's what in industries want. So you have to start adding these things. Yeah. So I guess, um, yeah, the ideal, the standard McDonald's becomes one with seats by the late 60s and early 70s. But as they move into downtowns with more expensive real estate or whatever, plus when they start saying, well, we've got to be more than everywhere, like it's not just enough to have outlets everywhere. We need to find these sort of niches. Like at some point, there just isn't room for a full McDonald's. You know, we've already got one on every block. Like, okay, but now we can have smaller units that are in these little niches like hospitals or whatever, or, you know, small in downtowns or in universities or whatever. And so there's not much incentive there to have, to have seats. I think it's all goes back to efficiency, control, maximizing dollars out of the space that you have. Like I don't, at some level, like I think there's a tendency among scholars to make capitalism too interesting 
<laughs> you know, like I think it, it is very interesting, particularly like, you know, yeah. it produces all these cultural meanings and all this sort of stuff. But at some level, it's a it's a machine of extraction. You extract value, maximum value out of minimum resources. Right. And yeah. so I think that's basically what's going on there. So that that includes you have to have seats for some people, but obviously they would rather people just come in and out as quickly as possible. Right. And I think that's one of the things that is historically interesting about fast food, at least to me, as someone who doesn't research the history of fast food. But like, you know, it seems interesting. One of the things that seems interesting about it is that it does represent this sort of capitalist maximization approach to something that like food is something that often people think of as, you know, emotional, family, mm-hmm. sort of sentimental in a lot of ways. And so it's taking that and turning it into something that is just sort of maximize, maximize, maximize. Yes, except the the, the strategy to do that is to appeal to families. Yeah, yeah, well, yes, that's true. And, and so the, again, like, to me, there's not, it's all part of the same package. Like, Croc wants to control the production of hamburgers. But he also wants to control the nature of his market because, again, part of it is maximize profits. But there's a kind of, yeah, there's a whole, the whole package there is money, family, cars, the whole kind of bit. Yeah. Yeah. And thinking about the seating thing, when I was thinking about it, I was trying to think of the last time that I had eaten in a fast food restaurant. Like I, I eat fast food occasionally, not mm-hmm. infrequently, but the last time I actually ate in a restaurant. And I think it was a few years ago on a road trip, which mm-hmm. emphasizes the point about mm-hmm. the relationship to cars, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, part of it is it's, it's roadside food still, despite the fact that it's got all these other locations. Like I think yep. the core of it is still, roadside and this is why the drive-through became so so vital in fact a lot of the appeal of the drive-through was attracting women as well because they often had kids in the back seat they didn't want to get them out and as a parent i know the last thing you want to do is unstrap your children you know, like, <laughs> uh, as soon as you start hauling them out of that thing your back hurts you know they're complaining if i could drive through and just keep those kids strapped in the back really until they're 20 and leave my house i would be thrilled and so <laughs> drive through but again that's the link between family and capitalism in that sense that yeah. there's a kind of gender play there hmm. although the original mcdonald's drive through if i'm remembering correctly was actually near a military base where the soldiers were not allowed to go into stores with their uniforms on and so the drive through allowed them to get mcdonald's on the way home without actually changing their clothes so yeah right right this is a bit of a tangent but so i as a teenager, worked at a Tim Hortons. Oh. And I often would work the drive through window. That was sort mm-hmm. of my thing a lot of the time. And the Tim Hortons I worked at. So I grew up in Saskatoon. Lots of people with huge lifted trucks. Mm-hmm. And I remember while I was working at the Tim Hortons, they installed like a second lane in the drive through which meant that the big trucks had to turn. And it was a sharp angle if you have this sort of unwieldy big truck. And I remember the truck drivers would sometimes get angry at me at the window because they would be like, oh, I used to come mm-hmm. all the time through this drive through And now you have this thing where I have to turn and it's such a 
pain in my butt to have to turn my I don't know and they would yell at me as the as the teen mm-hmm. at the drive-through window which always drove me crazy because you know mm-hmm. I'm just making like yeah. minimum wage and I didn't I didn't have any ability to choose this anyway this is sort of a tangent but it, it leads a little bit into my my next question for you which is about the experience of being a fast food worker so the movie doesn't spend a lot of time on what it's like to be a fast food worker we get sort of like a very slight glimpses of it but we do get some hints that the mcdonald brothers treated their workers a bit better than ray Kroc. it's part of this sort of narrative about uh, sort of honest businessmen versus maximizing profit Mm -hmm. i think that the movie is doing today i think fast food worker is the quintessential example in our culture of like a crummy job It's, it's that's sort of the stereotype has being a fast food worker always been a crummy job? And if not, why did that change? That's a good question. I'm not really sure. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not really sure there's a lot of literature on early fast food work. Like a lot of the serious research was initially done sort of by sociologists. And, you know, so they were talking contemporary workers. I hate to say like, it's like when you're in tutorial and you say, what do other people think of that? I, I, I just don't. And I'm not sure there's a whole lot of research like on how the workers at McDonald's, the McDonald brothers place enjoyed it or not. But yeah, it certainly becomes in the seventies, the sort of, yeah, the idea of McJobs, you know, that it becomes the sort of symbol of the, yeah, the absolutely most degraded work. The difficulty on the other hand of that, I mean, there's no question. It's absolutely de-skilled work. Like the whole agenda is to de-skill work, right? To take out of the workers' hands any discretion whatsoever. I mean, that's the that's how standardization occurs, and so nobody likes to do incredibly repetitive things over and over again. Yet at the same time, there is actually lots of evidence that people take pride in doing the work very well. Mm-hmm. You know, and so like so, there's a pride in competency and a pride in mobility that comes. Like, not everyone does these jobs as a kind of teenager and then moves on to something else. So. I always try to be careful around that just because there is a sort of narrative. Like, I'm not trying to say it's good work. Like the, the agenda is de-skilling and control. There's absolutely no question about that. There's huge turnover in these industries, which is always a, a sign that something is up. But it ends up making, yeah, like, I guess reducing the other side of that, which is workers who actually have some pride in what they're doing. And the fact that they do a good job, all of labor history is based on romanticizing people who don't do their jobs well, right? Like we always look to resistance. We always look to, you know, the guys who were not out putting the bolts on the car, but they were in the, in the bathroom drinking and gambling or whatever. This is like, this is the definition of an agent in labor history. And (laughs) sometimes I just kind of go like, I want to write a book called some dudes who did their jobs. (laughs) You know, and, and the the sort of pride that people take in doing a good job. I still think you can find evidence of that in fast food, but you can also find lots of evidence of people with absolute disdain yeah. for the systemic position that they've been put in. And sometimes you find those two things in the same people. Of course, and I didn't I didn't mean this as a as oh. a criticism of anybody who works in fast food or anything. Oh no 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 no! I didn't I didn't mean to suggest you were. Um, far from it. I I just. I have always struggled, I guess, with how to describe fast food work in a way that takes in both of those dynamics. 
without on the one hand sounding like the companies that say our workers are very have all this mobility you know but also on the other side not sounding like you know a professor looking down on forms of labor that I don't do right right and I think it's it's a very it's actually a surprisingly difficult thing like I think you need to keep focus on the system and the lack of discretion and examples of people being taken advantage of and so on but I, I've always found it a difficult balance to strike. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention about the history of fast food, about the movie that we haven't got to already? Strangely, what I found most interesting about the movie actually was Croc's wife. Okay. Ethel. Like, because there's a kind of, I, I almost wish they had made a movie about the women of McDonald's. His wife is quite an interesting figure who actually, I think, comes off a bit more positively in the movie than in like Croc's own kind of autobiography, which he sort of writes with a business writer. There is a there is a narrative in among these. If you read a lot of these fast food pioneer biographies, like I read like eight million of them to do some stuff on global fast food. And there's a kind of uh, archetype of the wife like there's it's almost like if you were a folklorist, you'd see like the three forms of, of fast food wife. There is the the wife who resisted my vision, who just didn't understand my vision. There is the wife who jumped in and supported me. She worked the counter with me. She swept up. She did all these things. And the third wife is she supported me by taking care of things at home mm-hmm. while I sacrificed time with my family to build my corporation. And I always just find that to be almost comically ridiculous. And the, the, I, these guys are doing exactly what they want, which is building their companies hanging out with a lot of men, practicing a kind of entrepreneurial masculinity that is about control and triumph. And, and as you said earlier, like winning mm-hmm. and the way, the personal ways they describe their companies, you know, my monument to capitalism, uh, you know, my triumph, my vision, my, it's all very personal. And you can kind of see Croc in the movie. He, he's got a very intimate attachment to his chain Yeah, in a way that's almost, again, economically illogical at times. And so uh, he's really, really committed to his vision. And it's partly about his ego in the film, you know? So anyway, I find the wife very interesting, Ethel very interesting, because like he does all these things, like the scene where he comes home and and she's like, did you mortgage our house? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and sometimes I'm, I'm not sure the movie's quite sure how to present Croc in that Sometimes we're supposed to kind of look at him and go like, dude, are you nuts? You went and mortgaged your house without even talking to your wife about it. Like, that's like weird. But because we know that in the end he built, he wins Mm -hmm. in in Crockian terms. Anyway, he wins. I'm never quite sure what the movie wants to tell us about this guy. Like behaviors I might think of as pathological, you know, ultimately do lead to his incredible success. Yet they also sort of present the McDonald brothers in a certain nice way and that they're, yeah, they they're, they have a better work-life balance than, than Croc does. The way that I saw it is that the movie is saying something about like what it really means to be one of these sort of ultra successful mm. capitalists. And it tends to mean that you do stuff that is absurd and like most people who do it would probably fail, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I think it's, it's interesting because yeah, there's sort of an interesting teleology element where you know McDonald's goes on to be hugely successful. So the stuff Croc does maybe doesn't seem as absurd when you watch it. But 
mortgaging your house without telling your wife about it, doing all this other stuff. He ends up, so I, I didn't really talk about the relationship with, with Ethel that much in my sort of summary of the movie, but for people who haven't seen, basically they end up splitting up because he feels like she's not as into McDonald's as he is, which she's still trying to be into McDonald's. Like she is trying to get her friends to establish franchises and stuff like that. Just not as intensely as Croc would like. Mm -hmm. And so, so I almost think this movie is sort of like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Vice, which is about Dick Cheney. No, I feel like it's a very similar movie where they sort of present all the nasty stuff the protagonist has done in order to achieve what that protagonist defines as success. Yes. And the movie is sort of asking you like, does it seem worth it to, to treat people like this and to do all this sort of shady stuff? I don't know. Maybe that's just my reading of it. Yeah, no. And and in some ways the strength of the movie is that doesn't actually hit you over the head with sort of how, ultra focus these people are like it doesn't yeah. make a, mor- a morality tale out of it and so i guess that's some ways the strength of the movie but you could read that movie as like yeah you know this is what you have to do to to su- to really succeed and i mean it is a bit of a rags to riches story at the same time yeah and so they do they and in fact they do make his wife sympathetic like it's mm-hmm. not like they're following that folklore that i mentioned earlier of these of these biographies but yeah i don't know i, I just wasn't sure always that I was clear enough on what they were, how they were trying to present Croc. I, I agree with you. They were, they were presenting him very much as someone so driven mm-hmm. about these businesses that everything else just kind of fades away. But at the end, you know, he's in five countries. He got the, his new wife is the person that he fell in love with playing piano. He drives away in a nice car, like the successful family that he has is the one we're, we were shown. We we don't see Ethel after he gets divorced. We don't see his kids. You know, you know, like I would just like be, it would be interesting to actually if I don't know, do a Natalie Davis and kind of reverse the perspective yeah. and actually make the movie from the perspective of the women, which is would not only be a one dimensional story and that the other person who the other woman that's in the movie is is June Martino, who is starts as his secretary when he's selling milkshake uh, makers. And it actually become, ends up becoming the treasurer and secretary of the company. And like he gives her 10% of the stock. She ends up being incredibly wealthy and actually a fairly powerful, you know, corporate woman. Uh, and she's presented very much as extremely competent mm-hmm. in the film. There's no question. And so here's someone who's a woman who exists quite comfortably in a completely male corporate culture. She does it, however, in ways that are limited. She starts as the secretary. She's also the kind of mother to everybody. You know, she right. she's given, you know, she point, oh, you should talk to the, you know, this person. And so I just think she's a very interesting character, too. So you wouldn't actually end up just with a movie about the people that Croc was ignoring while he built his company. You would end up with a quite an interesting palette of women to draw from. And you could also, again, look at like women who are involved in right beside their husbands with the in the franchises where, you know, Croc is going in about how look at the husband and wife team. And obviously we're supposed to think he's, oh, in the middle of that sentence, he realizes that he's not really a team with his wife. But again, it's not like he corrects his behavior. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm thinking of this too much as a parent. And also this, there is a narrative in all, again, I'm not just talking about Croc, but in all of these fast food narratives, there is this sort of thread that is 
I sacrificed by missing Christmas and by missing birthdays and by miss, you know, and my wife had to do extra work at home and I appreciated it so much. And I'm just like, you didn't sacrifice at all. You did exactly what you wanted to do. Again, I'm not talking about clock. I'm making a general sort of point because I don't know. Maybe they did experience it as sacrifice, but you know what I mean? Like it seemed to me in a lot of cases, they're just doing exactly what they want, sure. which is yeah. build their company rather than spend time at home. And so again, maybe I'm just thinking too much of this as a father. No, I think, I think that's a good way to think about it. I think it would be interesting to see it from, you know, it's sort of a twin biography where it's a biography of Croc, but it's also a biography of McDonald's, the business. Yes. And you could imagine doing McDonald's, the business paired with any of these other characters, right? It could be paired with, yeah, the wife or the secretary, or it could be paired with somebody working, you know, as like a fry cook or something like that, yeah. right? And, and sort of yeah. what that... And I feel like there's this particular genre of movie that is like the businessman biography, mm -hmm. which is always sort of like, like survivorship bias, the movie mm -hmm. where I guess we sort of already said it, but these businessmen make risky choices that in the movies pretty much always pay off mm -hmm. because they, they eventually go on to be, you know, CEO of McDonald's, CEO of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whatever it is. But the vast majority of people doing what they do or who have done stuff similar fail. And that doesn't make for, for a good movie. So, yeah. so that doesn't tend to be the focus, but I feel like sometimes that sends people a misleading message. Yeah. And I just, I guess, I mean, it's a perfectly fine thing. I mean, it, it is a story that people work and they get successful, whatever. I guess I just, my eye kept getting attracted to the edges of the screen. Yeah. <laughs> who is just a little off screen there. And like, it's a strange model of family that is simultaneously 100% implicated with family. Like the whole marketing message is family. Yet here are these entrepreneurs who almost never see their families. So the whole thing is just, there's a whole series of tensions there. I guess I find the gender ones kind of more interesting in some ways than the business tensions. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think one of the sort of maybe less historical ways of reading the movie that stood out to me, which relates to this dynamic, was watching this, one of the impressions I got about Croc was everything in his life is sort of fake, right? Because there's the stereotype that like McDonald's is like, quote unquote, fake food or something like that, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. it's, and then, so that's kind of cheesy. And then his personal relationships with everybody are fake. Like he's not, he's kind of fake with his wife and he lies to her. He's, he's deceptive with the McDonald brothers. And then... One thing that was interesting to me as well was that a lot of his like talking points are things he's taken from other people, right? Mm. Like he he listens to these motivational yeah. records yeah. and he sort of steals what they say. And then that's what he tells people. Mm -hmm. So I just, maybe not fake, fake, fake isn't maybe the right word, but like. Mm. Like constructed or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And sort of um, artificial, I guess is the mm -hmm. better, better word. Cur curated or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in some ways, you don't really get a sense in the movie of what Croc was good at in, in a strange way. And he was quite an effective salesman. So everybody says, like, if you read the if you read the things like the, those few moments where he's kind of talking, yeah, like there's the church and the flag and the thing, you know, I mean, he really was like really committed to this. And actually, having been a salesman for years and years before, like, he was really good at that pitch. One of the other things that a lot of the histories talk about is that. And again, I don't know if this is true, but he's an extremely good judge of character. 
And he seems to have almost an innate, this is the way they describe him anyway, this innate ability to very quickly figure someone out. And there's a few moments in the movie like where he takes on franchisees just because he gets a very quick, good impression of them. Or, yeah. you know, he meets Harry Sonneborn and Harry says 30 seconds worth of things to him. And, and he's like, come back to my office. You know, he really has right. and, and I mean, you read the histories of McDonald's and like these things are not so far from from uh, accurate. He he really did have a good sense of people. He would it would go the other way, too. There's a story about a, someone he wanted to fire and everyone convinced him not to. And eventually they had to fire him. But Croc had him read within 30 seconds. This is the idea anyway. Hmm. So he does surround himself. And again, part of his ability to do things just slightly better than everybody else, which ends up making a huge difference in terms of profit and scale, right. is that he, he does seem to attract smart people to his business, even when it's smaller than other companies. So there is he's a compelling figure. He's he's a good talker. He's a good salesman. He's hyper focused on yeah, like control and on the ground uniformity. And so he does have something of a vision there, I guess you'd call it. But yeah, oddly, they yeah they he's more a character in the in the movie than he is like a a person who we kind of see like you couldn't look at that movie and go well why exactly did Croc succeed? Mm. He's just kind of partly because you know business is sort of boring. This goes back to capitalism just in the end. Isn't that interesting? It's like sitting there counting the number of cars that pass by a lot. And I don't think that would be very exciting in terms of a movie. So he's an odd character that way, but yeah. And maybe everyone would look at that movie and go, Oh, this is a guy overly driven by his vision. But I just, yeah, it's, you said the teleology of it and that, you know, he succeeds in terms of what he thinks is success always gives me a, slightly creepy feeling about how people read those movies. Like this is what you have to do to, whereas the McDonald brothers who actually do at least aim for work-life balance. Yeah. They're, they're presented sympathetically, but in the end, you know, they move out in order to facilitate the ultimate success of the, the movie. It's like they, they bought out Chewbacca just before they destroyed the Death Star or something. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm like, but I like Chewbacca. He seemed to have a good attitude or something. You know, like, I, I'm just not entirely sure in the end what I'm supposed to make of Croc from, from watching this movie. Yeah, that's fair. I think they probably left it a, little, a bit ambiguous on purpose. I do yeah. think there are some people who who probably do read it as like, wow, what a what a businessman. Right, <laughs> yeah. The, he he was so single-minded in pursuing his vision and yeah. that whole yeah, I mean, it even says persistence, right? That's at the end, which he said all the time, like yeah. persistence. Talent means nothing. It's all persistence. And yeah. Well, you could say the same thing about being a father. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like be you know, what's the key to being a parent is being there. That's really the key to being a parent. And so there you have uh so that's another vision, you know, be persistent in paying attention to your children. And so, and again, I'm not, I don't know what Croc's family relationships were, you know, I'm just making a broader point about the way, if you read a lot of these biographies of these fast food guys, there's a kind of standard st narrative strategy around their families that kind of fall into those three groups, you know? Yeah. I always ask my guests this question. So from the perspective of a historian, not just from like, somebody watching the movie but what did you like most about the movie and if you got to be the director of the movie for one thing that you could change 
what would you like to change about it? I mean, I actually did like the movie. It actually, I think, caught a lot of the early dynamics, as I understand them, at McDonald's fairly well. Like the tension between Croc and the brothers over, I mean, as you put it, a different style of doing business. That definitely was true. Like he really admired them in the beginning and found them very frustrating by the end. Mm. His single-mindedness about business and particularly about success of a particular kind, I think they captured fairly well. Mm. So yeah, I actually did kind of, I like the movie and even like I was surprised by how well like uh, the Harry Sonneborn stuff with the property, buying property, like they have a whole scene where he explains we'll buy property and that will allow us to get more cash flow. And like how many movies have like, like a business model being described for like two minutes uh, and, and you don't turn it off. That was hard to do succinctly. Yeah, that was impressive. Yeah. Like even uh it's like they're they're giving you like a blow by blow account of finding the two meter hole that they can blow up the Death Star with to go back to Star Wars. <laughs> you know, like I don't they, you know, they actually did that surprisingly well, succinctly. Like they did actually do a good job on a lot of the kind of business stuff. So I actually like the movie. Again, I think if I was going to remake it though, I, I would it would might revolve much more around gender and family and that those those tensions, both in terms of the business model. I would make much more of the idea of trying to clean up the restaurant in cultural terms hmm. and tensions around driving teenagers away uh, and, and getting families to come. I would also, as I said, make the fa- his family more central to the question and maybe June Martino's place in the company more. And the other thing, though, is the, and the big weakness of the film, I think, is race. You know, a lot of white people in this movie. There's a few customers here and there and a few people who worked in the staff that were uh, African-American. I don't know. Uh, again, I don't know enough about the early history of the company in terms of their hiring practices and so on. But like a lot of these early fast food places were pretty white and they show that, although then they sprinkle in African-Americans. And there certainly is a fast food. I mean, you want to sell to everybody. There's absolutely no question about that. But for a company that was so interested in, you know, what I call moral hygiene and like a, a clean cut image of the place to the point that they don't hire women until the late 1960s, when literally unemployment is too low to get men to work in the store. Hmm. Like the, the, the first women that get hired is just a labor market question. They need people to and then they very strictly control what the women look like, what jobs they do and, and, and this kind of stuff, and at least in the beginning. And there still is a bit of an informal, although not formal, distinction between front of house and back of house that is gendered in a lot of fast food chains. So anyway, I would make a more of race, but that's because I'm an historian. It did seem like a stark omission from a historian's perspective, especially like dining culture in general in this period of American history. Race is like a big part of it oh, like, yeah. in terms of where people eat who is eating where, who is working where, et cetera. And I mean, later on, when they do go into more downtown inner city neighborhoods, they do have a lot of trouble around like African-American activists who say, you know, this is, these are white owned restaurants in African-American neighborhoods. Hmm. And they eventually get into what they call zebra partnerships, where they would have like white investors, but a black operator to try to sort of deal with that question. But, uh, and they do a lot of lobbying around, to this like small business administration to try to get funding for African-American owners and stuff. But yeah, it seemed like whiteness was kind of important. It's especially important. Other chains, like the, the really good example is Taco Bell, which was 
actually started like literally down the street from the McDonald's outlet and he started selling tacos and he tried to put it on the, this is Glenn Bell tried to put it on the McDonald's model essentially of tacos, but he realized that he had to tone down the spices, you know, that he, had, he was essentially taking what was still a Mexican food and trying to make it into something that mainstream white suburban families would eat. His market wasn't Mexican immigrants. It was, you know, the same market as McDonald's. And at one point Taco Bell actually advertises the taco is the the cheeseburger that goes crunch and it's like it's like an attempt to read to to describe what is a foreign food to a sort of mainstream kind of white market so there the tension is a little more explicit yeah so i would have liked some dealing with with race certainly i mean they're they're opening outlets in segregated places you know like legally segregated so what's what's going on there what's the what's the dynamic yeah that would be that would be valuable to include. Steve, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me about this movie and for watching the movie. Do you have any projects you're working on or, or anything like that that you'd like to share with the listeners? For people who are interested, I'll include a couple of your, your publications in the description that are about fast food history. No, I've been working recently on, I've been doing, trying to write a, almost finished a sort of history of Canadian shopping from like, Fur trade to free trade, as we as we say, hmm. and also a, a book on the the Scarborough Expressway that was never built in Toronto. It's like the unbuilt Scarborough Expressway, both why they wanted to build a, an expressway across Scarborough, which is a suburb of Toronto for those people outside of Toronto, why it didn't get built, particularly the emergence of suburban opposition to the expressway, like in the suburbs, and then uh, the traces that it leaves on the city, because there's these like parks and subdivisions that were the old Scarborough route. So I've been working on that as well. So I, I just continue to, I guess, to plug away at my little red studies. <laughs> those are interesting if, if you're interested in some of the themes we talked about today i think both of those will will tie in either with car culture or capitalism so people should stay on the lookout for those when they come out thanks so much for joining me today oh it's a pleasure thanks so much that's all for today's interview thank you for listening and thanks to steve for taking the time to speak with me if you'd like to learn more about the history of fast food check the description for a couple of steve's publications on the topic I've also collected some interesting vintage fast food photos and artwork and put them up on Facebook and Instagram, so check those out. We're at Off Campus History on both sites. Some of the photos include menu items, and it's interesting to have a look through those. Apparently Tim Hortons in the 60s used to serve hot dogs? Anyway, if you want to support the podcast, it really helps me out if you recommend it to someone you know. Personal recommendations are really valuable for growing the audience. If you'd like to leave a review for the show on the Apple Podcast page, that also helps a lot. If you'd like to send me any comments about this or other episodes, leave me a comment on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. I'm also happy to hear suggestions for future episode topics and to hear from historians who are interested in appearing on a future episode. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Karia. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more Off Campus History. Off Campus History